This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, happy Friday. It's great to have your company for the Country Hour across South Australia and into Broken Hill. I'm Cassie Huff. Now coming up... Are you interested in looking at carbon credits? A lot of people have been a bit interested in what they could offer. Well, the man who helped develop the accreditation systems for carbon trading in Australia is warning farmers not to sell their credits. So imagine a farmer that after three years of La Nina, carbon aggregator says you have another couple of tonnes of carbon we can sell. They sell them and then we have three years of drought. And it all goes barrowing out the soil because that's actually what happens in natural ecosystems. You know, it's rainfall that determines the balance. So then there's a deficit of carbon relative to what they've sold. It is a question that I think a lot of people are asking. So we'll have some more details on that soon. Also, I'll have an update from Viterra on just how much grain has been ripped in this state so far into that organisation. But... First up, I'm sure a lot of you are hooking in while the weather is fine at the moment to get this crop off. And it seems some people have actually recruited more than 100 ex-Defence Force personnel to help with the grain harvest across Australia this season as well. Operation Grain Harvest Assist started last year when the pandemic prevented overseas workers travelling to Australia. Deniliquin's Mark Rogan was part of the Army's Royal Australian Electrical and Mechanical Engineers and this is his second year assisting with the grain harvest. Last time I was out at Japarrat uh, for a family farm out there and I was uh, chaser bin driving. And uh, to me, that was a very good apprenticeship. I, I learned how grain flowed and how it moves and the speed and the efficiency that uh, you had to operate at as a chaser bin driver when you're running two headers and only you and large paddocks. What are you doing this time, Ren? I'm driving the semi-trailer, heavy combination. Uh, I got my licence probably 18 months ago under Project Verto, which I believe was a Commonwealth system, to get over 60s trade skilled modified and to give them other skills. So I snatched that and I'm here doing, doing this now. This is the most satisfying job, uh, one of the most satisfying jobs I've ever had, to see uh, what's done and you're taking part of it and the grain going into the bunkers at the silos and then the grain going back out down to Geelong. Where's it going? It's just you're adding to, uh, to Australia's um, exports. Hi, my name's Ian Bennett and I'm from Canberra. What's prompted you to come and drive a truck to help with the grain harvest? Well, I've always had a fascination with machinery and when I got out of the army about 22 years ago I sort of fell into the IT trade and, and all the job advertisements I saw through the years all wanted experience, you know, experienced headers, chaser bin drivers, experience and because I, I don't have much experience in the truck driving game, so then when Grain Harvest Assist came up, I was on the course at Longrenong and from a chaser bin job I did last year, I spent that money on getting a licence upgrade to multi-combination. What's a typical day looking like for you while you're here in Oyen? Uh, it depends a lot on weather, obviously, how the grain's coming off. Uh, most of the time we're just doing runs either out of the chaser bin or the field bins um, when us trucks can't keep up. And uh, probably three, maybe four loads a day. I mean, well, providing we're um, uh, not fatigued, we'll go until the silos close. But no, it's good. I like it. It's fabulous. You've just taken me from the farm to the receival site. And while I've been in the cab with you, I've noticed that 
there's a picture of a crab and number 33 on the windscreen. What's that all about? Oh, I'm a, um, I joined the Army in 1978 as an apprentice, uh, electronics technician. And then from there I went to Royal Australian Corps of Signals. And the crab is a symbol from uh, apprentices school. And, uh, and in the middle of the body you always put your intake number in there and just people immediately know what it is. The work that you're doing with Operation Grain Harvest Assist, do you envisage wanting to continue doing this in the years to come? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm loving it. I like, I like working for family farms. The job I did last year was for a, a contract harvester. And, I much, and you're moving around all the time. And I, I think I much prefer uh, being in one place for longer, getting to actually know the people you're working for. Ian Hastings said it where you get a, a virtual hug every time you wander down the street. You know, people say hello and they give you a wave and, and all that sort of thing. It's a really, really nice atmosphere. I like it. Retired Oyun farmer and veteran Ian Hastings says he's very supportive of the initiative. Harvest is always a difficult time to find people with the right skills. And in the past, my son Michael has driven our big B-double because it's always hard to find someone on a short-term basis to drive a B-double. And, and I've always been really concerned about that because I think he needs to be in the paddock. He's, he's the one doing the planning and running the farm, so he needs, needs to see what's happening in the paddock. And so it was really important to try and find someone capable of driving the B-double so that Mick could stay home on the farm. So that, that was one of the things. And um, the last two or three years, we've had various people drive the other truck. And now Mark's got that gig this year and he's doing it well. I know that you were involved in the training that was held as part of Operation Grain Harvest Assist at Longrenong, and it's the first time that's been run. How helpful is that in terms of making sure that the participants in that program have the skills they need to be safe and as productive as possible? We were just absolutely gobsmacked that we had 18 people apply this time and some of them were as, as higher ranking ex-service people as colonels and uh, when we got to meet the 18 people and Ian who is standing here with us is one of those, um, they were just people who had finished their time in the ADF, they'd um, to an extent rattled around in Civvy Street and not really found something that they wanted and they didn't want full time work a lot of them. So this really appealed part-time and from the farming perspective we've got people who are trusted with very responsible jobs in the past, they're capable of listening to and, and doing what they're asked and they've got technical skills. So I mean from, a, from an agriculture perspective we couldn't ask for anyone better. It does sound like a match made in heaven there with the skill set matching up there. That was retired Oyen farmer and veteran Ian Hastings sending that report. I'd be interested to know if you have got some ex-Defence Force personnel helping you with your grain harvest. You can text me 0467922891. Speaking of the harvest, Bytera has now taken in 3.3 million tonnes of grain this season in what is shaping up to be the largest on record in South Australia. Friday was the busiest day with 226,000 tonnes delivered into the company's network. Viterra's General Manager of Operation, Gavin Kavanagh, has the latest update. Viterra's now taken just over 3.3 million uh, tonnes of grain for this season. And uh, I understand that this last week has uh, surpassed the total of the rest of the harvest. It's really starting to come in now. That's correct. I mean, harvest, you would say now, is generally in, in full swing across the state. And we've had multiple days now where we've been receiving in excess of 200,000 tonnes per day. Which day has been your busiest? 
Uh, last Friday um, was our busiest day with 226,000 tonnes received on that day. Have you started exporting any grain? Uh, yeah, we've loaded, uh, completely loaded 12 vessels now, totaling over 400,000 tonne of grain out of the Viterra system today. The ability or our ability to load those sort of 12 export vessels, um, that's in excess of 400,000 that's gone out of our storage system, which enables us to refill that and create additional capacity by moving grain through the supply chain over the harvest period. How far into the, the wheat harvest do you think South Australia is? I guess we, it varies a little bit area by area, but um, you're certainly right in terms of the canola receivers. In, in particular, the canola receivers are on Air Peninsula. Um, we've now seen a record canola crop produced on Air Peninsula, and we're in fact 40% higher than our, our previous ever largest crop on, on Air Peninsula. We've about a third of the crop... Um, being GM, um, which is sort of three, three and a half times the amount of GM canola we took on Air Peninsula last year. Likewise, um, yeah, we're further advanced on, on crops like lentils and barley, but with a crop like wheat, uh, we're still, in a lot of areas, uh, we still haven't received a lot of wheat as growers are still wrapping up on their canola and barley first. How are segregations going? Because I've heard that some barley grades have had to be reduced. We haven't needed to reduce any of our, uh, our barley grades, uh, for example. Um, I guess from our point of view, we're, we're looking at the majority of the grain, um, even though we had a late start to harvest, um, the majority of the grain has, has been really of exceptional quality. Where there have been some isolated pockets where perhaps uh, um, there's been some quality impact due to the seasonal events, but in those cases, they're normally covered through a standard um, segregation, um, the lower grades of barley or the lower grades of wheat. If they're not, we kind of we spend time working with our grower customers and our end-use customers to work out whether there is really a market demand for anything that has a seasonal quality impact and then um, try and accommodate um, those if there are if there is that end-use market demand and we have the ability to add those additional segregations based on availability of space. Have you had to downgrade much grain due to weather effects? No, I think um, surprisingly the majority of the grain, and when I say surprisingly, just due to the the really wet spring, the majority of grain that we've taken in uh, to date has been of really good quality. And in fact, I've kind of been really surprised in some areas just about the amount of grain, for example, uh, that's gone malt barley. I was going to ask about malt barley. How has malt barley gone given how wet it's been? Again, I think it's a little bit uh, specific to each area, but I think myself and I think the majority of growers would be um, pleasantly surprised in, in most areas about the amount of barley or of grain that has been received as, as malt. There will be people pulling off the largest crop they've ever pulled off before. Have you heard of any really big tonnages yet coming off paddocks? We have, uh, yes. And I, I think um, there's no doubt that um, in some of our grower conversations we're having, the yields are exceeding their expectations in some cases, yes. And I guess what we're trying to work out for every incredible crop is, is that the, the average of everyone or is that just the exception? Because obviously, 
you know, we, we tend to use the phrase here that bigger crops tend to get bigger. So, you know, if one person's got eight tonnes, someone else got that as well. And, and then ensuring we understand that to make sure that we've got, a, I guess, a planning right to be able to handle that. Badera's General Manager of Operations, Gavin Cavanagh, speaking there. A bit of an update on how the crop is going. And speaking of uh, farming, we know that there's many great farmers across South Australia. We had some winners in the the most recent uh, Farmer of the Year awards, but it'd be great to have some more. So here's some details. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au Proudly supported by the Kandinan Group and ABC Rural. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Do get your nominations in for Farmer of the Year. It'd be great to chat to some South Australians who are doing great work across this state. Weather is not far away, but in the meantime, it's... uh, a man who developed or helped develop the accreditation systems for carbon trading in Australia is warning farmers not to sell their credits. Professor Rick, Richard Eckard is an advisor to the UN and governments around the world on sustainable farming. And he told Tina Quinn, farmers ought to think twice about selling their credits because they'll need to be carbon neutral themselves by 2030. There are some serious problems, as in, you know, not all Australian carbon credits are equal, and that's pretty obvious. The, you know, Andrew McIntosh from ANU pointed out that some ACCUs had been issued for projects that, for example, Coles had bought against their carbon neutral meat. They'd bought from a, pro, a human-induced regeneration project in Western Queensland where the trees just simply weren't there. And what fascinates me about that media story is that the media accused Coles of buying dodgy credits, but it was the government that, it, that guaranteed that all ACCUs were equal, and clearly they weren't. So what fascinated me is why Coles got hammered and the clean energy regulator got away with it because, well, the clean energy regulator was the one who issued dodgy credits. Is any of this actually reducing the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, though, or is this just basically you know, a loophole that looks good on paper? It's unfortunate that it is a loophole. So some of the projects do reduce emissions, but you've got this disparity where a lot of credits went to avoid a deforestation which was paying, paying farmers who had no intention to declare trees, not to clear trees, that they had no capital to clear. There's two problems there. One, there was no intention to clear, so the, the additionality just wasn't there. In other words, we were paying them to do something they had no intention of doing. So a kind of superfluous payment. But secondly, if you think about it, using taxpayer money to buy emission reductions towards our Paris goal, paying a farmer not to chop down trees doesn't actually buy you an emission reduction. So suddenly you've got money going, taxpayer money going to buy, to pay farmers not to chop down trees that doesn't actually buy us towards our Paris commitment. Uh, You can't actually call them Kyoto credits or credits towards our nationally determined contributions under Paris because they didn't reduce emissions. And what about carbon storage? How much carbon can actually be stored in the soil within this country? Well, therein lies some of the problems where Some of the original assessments done by CSIRO have kind of been ignored in favour of assessments that the Morrison government took to the COP meeting in Glasgow that came from a conflict of interest carbon aggregator. 
who had the grossly inflated evangelical levels of carbon that could be stored in our soils. And all you've got to look is at a rainfall map of Australia and a rainfall variability map. Our, our science would say under a constant management of a agricultural system, about 85% of the annual change in carbon is just rainfall. So we are in danger this spring of paying farmers for soil carbon that is a function of just the three years of La Nina. Do you think it's a good idea at all for farmers to really engage with the carbon market in this way? So imagine a farmer that after three years of La Nina, carbon aggregator says you have another couple of tonnes of carbon we can sell. They sell them and then we have three years of drought and it all goes burrowing out the soil because that's actually what happens in natural ecosystems. You know, it's rainfall that determines the balance. So then there's a deficit of carbon relative to what they sold. And the new owner of those carbon credits comes knocking at the door and says, so where's my carbon? And it's sitting in the atmosphere. That's a serious risk. And the banks are onto it. They, they understand that risk. But there's a bigger risk. The bigger risk is all the supply chains have said they're going to start demanding low emissions production starting 2030. So why would you sell your soil carbon when you actually desperately need it to table against your own supply chain access by 2030? The main game is selling meat and milk and, you know, wheat and and bananas. And if you sold carbon and can't sell your primary product by 2030 because you can't meet the requirement, why would you do that? Professor Richard Ecker, Director of Primary Industries Climate Challenges Centre and Melbourne University. And uh, there were issues identified under the Australian Carbon Credit Scheme this year and it's currently under review by the federal government. More to come on what's happening with dairy cows along the River Murray in the wake of this flood that's coming down the river. It's uh, certainly getting to be quite a high river now, so I'll have more on that soon. But in the meantime, higher prices for dairy, both at the farm gate and also on supermarket shelves, have not been enough to arrest a 6.5% drop in production for the season to October. That's according to Dairy Australia's latest situation and outlook report, which was released this week. It comes with time when consumers are increasingly price sensitive and production in the northern hemisphere has also ramped up however the dairy australia's industry insights and analysis manager john droppett told peter somerville seasonal conditions will continue to be the biggest wild card for the industry over the next few months one of the manifestations i think of the the shortfall in in milk production here in australia that we're seeing you know starting to emerge is um, you know we're seeing price increases for milk step ups at, at the farm gate you know that's at a time where um, global markets are drifting so you know while there's some support domestically from the domestic market you know obviously uh, uh, higher dairy prices on the shelf means more uh, more money in the supply chain, which does help support that farm gate price. Uh, I think the increases in farm gate price we're seeing really do, you know, really do allude to that uh, tightness in milk supply. So farmers are uh, are profitable, but of course there's some real um, real challenges that have defined 2022. So high costs being one of them, uh, staff shortages being another, and on top of that, now uh, through spring we've had the wet conditions and the flooding. So uh, from a farm perspective. Uh, that's thrown some, you know, some extra curveballs out, especially for the farmers that are directly impacted. Uh, but of course, it's impacting feed prices, for example, for those farmers who aren't even, you know, directly impacted by flooding. And and of course, the wet conditions creating challenges too. Uh, so we we looked at that in the report, and also the consumer side of things. You know, we're seeing more and more data around the the CPI and the 
uh, you know, increasing cost of of everything, but uh, but dairy is very much a part of that um, that increasing cost of living, and um, trying to unpack some of the consumer behaviours in response to that. How are dairy farmers negotiating all of that? How is uh, their production tracking? So production's down around six and a half percent for the season to date. So uh, you know you've got the hangover of the, the the floods in New South Wales and Queensland, and then uh, obviously been a wet winter across those northern states. And now, you know, a wet spring down south. So, so milk production is lagging behind, lagging behind last season. Uh, we had the floods uh, again in October, give it a knock around in, in northern Victoria especially. Um, so we will be, uh, we, we're going to finish this season below last season, I think uh, goes without saying. Uh, we've seen increase in culling, you know, it's because you know, farmers navigating those wet conditions on farm and, and trying to reduce um, stocking rates. And of course, again, the, the staff challenges have, have you know, stopped farms who might otherwise be expanding from, uh, from chasing that as well. Dairy Australia's John Droppett speaking with Peter Somerville to the Bureau of Meteorology. Now we're a senior forecaster, Tom Bowick. Do me good afternoon? Hello there, Cassie. Still a bit cool at the moment, but it's warming up tomorrow. Uh, yes, it is. And uh, in the west of the state, uh, condition temperatures are starting to, to rise already fairly significantly. So we're sort of well into the 30s for the western parts of the state where the winds have uh, have turned northerly. Um, to get a bit of thunderstorm activity around this morning through the sort of Air Peninsula and the northwest pastoral and west coast district. It wasn't a great deal in that, but there was some uh, uh, some rainfall totals up to about uh, sort of one to three millimetres in, in, in locations. So um, um, yeah, but uh, look, most of that sort of has, has dried up now um, for the uh, short term. There could be a bit of more thunderstorm activity developing over the northwest pastoral this uh, this afternoon. Um, now, yeah, into tomorrow, certainly uh, we've got this northerly airstream still expected ahead of the trough feature, which is moving into the uh, uh, into the, the, the west of the state uh, sort of during the day. Uh, and the trough's maybe slowed a little, but uh, um, be extending over the remaining districts uh, overnight, Saturday and uh, into Sunday. So uh, ahead of that system, uh, still a chance of some thunderstorm activity through um sort of the northwest pastoral in the main there and uh, certainly we do have uh, an elevated fire danger around uh, um, for tomorrow with these hotter temperatures and increasing northerly winds and uh, yeah through this sort of northwest pastoral district there and perhaps the, the southern parts of the uh, or the northern parts of the Air Peninsula of Flinders district uh, could be looking at temperatures getting into the sort of 40s in through there so uh, yeah pretty hot sort of conditions. Um, now um, yeah apart from that should be Mostly dry, could be a shower in the southeast of the state, but um, they're, they're going to be sort of fairly isolated as well and, and sort of not, not too much in that, if, if anything at all. Um, now into Sunday, we do have the change continuing to establish, uh, um, possibly still sort of warm about the eastern districts at first and, and hot in the northeast, but uh, thunderstorms contracting northeast with, with the change. But there will be some shower activity to follow um, over the agricultural area in the milder southwesterly airstream as it sort of establishes during Sunday. Now, um, into next week then, uh, a significantly cool week coming up actually for the uh, middle of um, sort of December there. So, uh, um, and that will see for, for Monday some isolated showers for the agricultural area, uh, probably more likely over the southern agricultural area and, and even increasing to some scattered showers near the southern coasts, the Mount Lofty Ranges and the southeast districts uh, uh, for Monday and, and cooler in the south grading to warm in the far north. 
Tuesday looks like a similar sort of a day, continuing with those uh, cool to cold conditions even. Even got a chance of some small hail in the south of the lower southeast district uh, on, on Tuesday there. But, uh, yeah, still expecting some scattered showers for the southern coast, Mount Lofty Ranges and the southeast districts. Now... For Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, look, the cooler conditions are continuing, probably tending to uh, become somewhat milder as we move into to, to Friday there, but uh, still looking pretty cool. And uh, showers easing, isolated showers for the agricultural area, contracting southwards uh, on the Thursday. It should be confined to southern coast and the lower southeast by Friday. Uh, it should be dry over the remainder, but there is just some isolated showers and thunderstorms possible in the northwest and far west of the state. Now, the cumulative rainfall totals until the end of Tuesday, generally expecting less than two millimetres. Some some places may get less than that as well. Um, increasing to two to ten millimetres for the agricultural area. Uh, reaching 10 to 20 millimetres in the south of the lower southeast and the southern Mount Lofty ranges. Uh, there's also a chance of some totals of 2 to 10 millimetres possible with the thunderstorms in the north and west. Uh, look, most of the rainfall through the agricultural area and southern agricultural area uh, will be um, sort of Monday onwards there. Uh, back to you, Cassie. Thanks for that. Tom Bowick there with the weather report. In the far west of New South Wales, it'll be sunny. A bit of wind around. Overnight temperatures down to 11 to 15 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach the low to mid-30s. The lower western will be sunny down to 8 to 11, but during the day opening up to about 30 degrees. It's coming up to 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, it's great to have you company this Friday afternoon. We know that the River Murray water is definitely on its way. The Riverland is already feeling the effects. But further down now, there's also a lot of nervousness, particularly among the dairy producers who make some of the River Murray flats their home. Uh, they're concerned about what this flood water could mean for their cows. There's a second wave coming. It's going to be with us sometime after Christmas or, you know, knowing our luck, Christmas Day, but we need to make sure that if a levee is breached, what happens to the cows? Where do the cows go? If the levee's breached, what do we feed the cows? If the levee's breached, how do we access power? It's getting closer and it's getting more scary. Yeah, but it's heartbreaking and it's a different rule book. You know, we've been, it's not that long ago we were talking about drought and now we're, yeah, talking about another challenge. And it is, it is very taxing. It's certainly a big turnaround and we'll get into some more detail of some of the issues that dairy farmers are facing down uh, closer to the Murray Mouth where a lot of dairy production does take place. Also, thousands of dollars worth of fines have been handed out in the Riverland uh, as part of a fair work ombudsman crackdown on pay slips and record keeping. I'll have more details on that soon. But first, here's Matt Coleman with the news. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, member for Barker Tony Passon is worried that locals are losing confidence in flood modelling. The state government has revealed that flow data over the South Australian border released yesterday was inaccurate. With water coming into the state currently at 180 gigalitres per day, that's that's despite official data released yesterday morning showing flows into the state at 150 gigalitres for the day. 
A sixth person has been arrested in relation to an alleged rape in a car park in Adelaide CBD last weekend. A court heard yesterday that seven males allegedly forced two women into the stairwell of an Adelaide car park where they were then repeatedly raped. Five males, including minors, are already facing court action. And new data has revealed the number of hours lost to ambulance ramping outside of the state's emergency departments increased last month. 3,516 hours were lost in the transfer of care of patients in November, an increase of 5.5% on October. More news at 1 o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt. Now, as I was saying, this flood water is on the move and while the Riverland is already experiencing concerns, the threat to Murrayland's residents is quickly increasing. Local dairy farmers there are concerned about what this is going to mean for their cows in particular and are fearing the worst. Dimitri Panagiotaris has more. Authorities warn that the SA section of the River Murray will see flows of up to 220 gigalitres a day by the end of the year, with 180 gigalitres a day flowing across the state border just this week. While the Murray lands will receive these flows almost two weeks after the Riverland, residents like third-generation Jervois dairy farmer Dina Gazola is one of those being forced to make quick and expensive decisions to save his property and cows. When asked about the current situation, this is what he had to say. We have no irrigation, we'll have no stock and domestic water and uh, the next issue is protecting the dairies themselves so that we can milk our cows. So we've all had to spend, I know of people who have spent over $200,000 just trying to protect the bank, build infrastructure above the possible flood level. Uh, I myself have spent in excess of 50000 and I'm about to spend probably another 40000 minimum. Whether, whether the bank goes or not, our situation here is we've got a government-based levy and uh, the government over the last five to ten years just haven't spent the money on keeping the structure up to a sound height. So for some reason, they've based it on a 74 level, but they haven't based it on the, tr- on the 56 level, which we've had before and have flooded before. So we're, they have told us that our bank is safe to 74 level, which I doubt, um, but now they're talking flows of 200 to 220, which is well in excess of what our bank has rated to. So in terms of the impact it's going to have on the dairy farm, what does that mean? When that water comes in to that area, do you have the ability to move the cows quickly to safe ground or is it all going to happen, if it does happen, quite quickly? It will happen very quickly if it happens. Our biggest enemy is a southerly and westerly winds pushing up on the lakes. That can raise the water level seven to 800 mils in hours, basically. But if the bank does go, depending on where it goes, Jervois is 18 kilometres long. If it broke at my place, I would literally have possibly two hours. That's about it, to get everything off the swamps and out. That's it. And you're not the only one in this situation. Obviously, there's a high percentage of dairy farmers in the area. So how, how is that then going to impact the whole dairy industry? If we've got cows having to be moved quickly, what does that mean from a welfare perspective if they're not being able to be milked? Well, if they, if they can't be milked, most people here now put generators in. If we go to uh, gensets or powers, we can then uh, still milk our cows. But once you miss two or three milkings with a cow, then mastitis and somatics go so high, which is a health, major health risk to the cows, and can take up to six to eight weeks to uh, get that cow back to a condition where mastitis isn't affected anymore. The amount of penicillin you've got to use, or especially in organic situations where they can't even use that, means you have to cull your herd quite dramatically.
if uh, if we were to flood our first plan of defence here, or for, for any form of longevity, is to we would have to sell 50% of our herd, and everybody else would be in the same situation. It's not like you can give it to the other dairy farmer to look after that cow. They would literally have to go to the meatworks. So we would stand to lose, or have to. This is just my farm alone. We would have to cull our herd by a minimum of 100 head, minimum straight away. There's no way we can feed uh, all those cattle with the ground that's left without the lands below us here. And as time goes on and you're seeing the situation in, in the Riverland get worse, do you feel that is a, a very real problem that you may be confronted with? Oh, definitely. No, we well, just go and spend $100,000 uh, knowing that you may or may not use it. And uh, friends of mine, they've uh, spent up, to, uh, like I said previously, up to two hundred thousand, and a lot of that they may never use either. But we just can't afford to lose it. That's all there is to it. You've invested so heavily over the years in fencing, cropping, uh, infrastructure without pumps and everything else because if it goes underwater well I lose not only do I lose all my uh, floodplain but I also lose all my highland irrigation because we have no power to, to pump it the poles and the pumps are all down obviously near the river or on the lowest points and then it's a kind of AGL come along and say, no, nah, sorry, we're going to take your power away. Well, then you look at a gen set, and uh, gen sets aren't readily available anymore at the moment. They've been virtually sold out throughout the state. And a minimum gen set to run a highland irrigation pump, you're talking 100 kVA minimum pump, we'll now be looking at, if we got lucky enough to get a gen set down there on a high enough pad, we would then be looking at around anything up to $100 an hour just to run our pumps, which is totally inefficient. You're spending $2,500 a day just to pump water. You're better off selling selling half your herd and turn that money into hay and feed what you've got left. It's just a crisis mode, basically. It's like my right here, right now. If the bank was to breach here in front of my place right now, I would only have a matter of hours to get everything out, and I wouldn't have a hope in hell of doing it. If it doesn't flood, I've lost tens of, well, more than that, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Not just that, the employment and everything else that we use. Then you've got fertiliser, diesel, and the, the on costs from farming. Then my council rates won't go down. My mortgage won't go down. I've still got to pay all those bills. So you literally can't afford not to take a chance. And no insurance will cover you because it's classified flood and you won't get flood insurance. So, yeah, it's hard, yeah. That was Jervoice dairy farmer Dino Guzzola. CEO of the South Australian Dairy Farmers Association, Andrew Curtis, says even though they've been working with farmers to plan for the potential of flood, there's still a lot of uncertainty about exactly what's to come. Look, at the moment, it's a, a, a little bit of hurry up and wait. Like, we know there's something coming, but we don't quite know, you know how big it is or what it is. We don't know the scale. We don't know exactly what's coming. The whole system hasn't been challenged for 50 years, so, yeah, we don't know where, where, where the faults are likely to come up. But we're getting a fair handle as the first wave goes through the Riverland, like the first peak of about how big that is. We can look at that with some modelling and, and understand where where some of the initial hotspots will be, but we don't yet know what the second, which the only thing we know is it's going to be bigger. There's a second wave coming. It's going to be with us sometime after Christmas or, you know, knowing our luck, Christmas Day, but we need to make sure that if a levy is breached, what happens to the cows? Where do the cows go? If the levy's breached, what do we feed the cows? If the levy's breached, how do we access power? It's getting closer and it's getting more scary. Yeah, but it's heartbreaking and it's a different rule book. You know, we've been, it's not that long ago we were talking about drought and now we're, yeah, 
talking about another challenge, and it is it is very taxing. It is uh, causing a lot of grief for a lot of people along the river at the moment. That was CEO of the South Australian Dairy Farmers Association, Andrew Curtis, ending that report by Dimitri at Panagiotaris. The ABC contacted the Department of Water and Environment who, in a statement, said that Dew maintains levy banks on Crown land only along the River Murray. We have confidence in their performance in a flood event up to the levels and flows for which they are designed. And it's important to note that even if they are structurally sound, levy banks can only perform their role up to that designed level. So that's what they had to say. But uh, if you do have concerns, particularly about your livestock, you can contact the Persa Recovery Hotline. That number is 1800 931 314. And the department is working with the livestock industry partners like Livestock SA and uh, Australian Dairy Association to ensure that livestock are able to be relocated to higher ground in preparation for higher flows. So a bit of work is taking place in that area. Staying with, I guess, uh, a river area, um, that is the river land, the Fair Work Ombudsman has actually fined growers and labour hire companies in the Riverland, Sunraysia and New South Wales Mid-North Coast regions almost $80,000 in fines altogether. Breaching payslip and record-keeping laws have been the main issues. However, there are actually high levels of compliance in Queensland this year. Fair Work Ombudsman Sandra Parker says the FWO has investigations into more than 80 agriculture employers nationally. It's a priority area for us, agriculture, because we find um, high levels of non-compliance. So we've been targeting particular what we call hotspots. So in terms of uh, different areas, we've investigated uh, you know, 237 businesses in those hotspots across Australia and we've looked for intelligence that suggests non-compliance. And we've been issuing uh, notices, infringement notices, uh, and looking particularly at record keeping. Uh, in terms of South Australia's Riverland, we're focused there. We're also focused on northwest Victoria's Sunraysia region and Coffs Harbour in New South Wales and Grafton. Uh, and more work to come in those areas. Why do you think compliance is lacking in the Riverland in some areas? What are you hearing from the businesses that have been investigated as to why they breached or, or didn't meet the compliance? What we find is that uh, record keeping is an issue and that was the focus of, of these audits. And record keeping is really important. It's really the bedrock of the workplace relations system. So employers need to keep records and by that I mean they need to be noting what hours people are working, what they're paying them, when they're doing overtime, when they're on leave, and because that's how they can work out whether they're paying properly and that's how the worker can work out if they're being paid properly. They're legally required to provide pay slips to workers and what we're finding is uh, too many times they're not providing those pay slips or they're incorrect pay slips and that makes it very hard for our inspectors to do their jobs. If there are not pay slips, then we need to go to what was put into the person's bank account, what should have been paid, how many hours do we think they should have been working. It becomes sort of he said and she said. It's very, very difficult. So we've had to issue uh, close to $80,000 in fines to employers for breaching pay slips and records laws in these particular raids that we've been doing. Is it purely because you haven't been able to... Uh confirm or, or as you said, uh, check these pay slips and the, the recording of, of payment or, or were people actually being underpaid that were fined? 
Yeah, so in some cases we certainly found um, underpayments and we issue two different types of notices we can issue. We issue an infringement notice where someone hasn't been keeping accurate or any uh, payslips or records. Uh, and for those who've been underpaid or we believe have been underpaid, uh, we issue what's called a compliance notice. So we've issued six of those. And we're saying that the employer contravened uh, an award or a national employment standard. Of those four were employers in the Riverlands. Uh, one was in, an employer in Moreton Bay and, and Sunraysia region. Now, they've all related to underpayment of hourly rates. Uh, and there was one in Mildura that uh, didn't provide a Fair Work information statement. And just for information of your listeners, uh, when someone starts a new job, they are required to receive they must receive a Fair Work Information Statement, which is a written document, can be an email, but it needs to set out their rights and entitlements under the workplace relations law. And where they don't, where an employer doesn't provide that, uh, then they can be, uh, we can issue a notice requiring that. And if they don't comply after that, we can obviously take them to court and seek penalties against the employer. There were changes to the Hawke Code of Practice and uh, the way people were paid in uh, various agricultural industries. Has that been complied with largely across the country? It varies. Um, we have found um, quite good outcomes in uh, Queensland and that's because we've been, we think it's because we've been working really hard with employers in the Queensland area and we found a high level of compliance there. And we're obviously really pleased too that we're seeing employers looking at automated systems. Uh, they're they're moving over to uh, providing the new requirements for minimum minimum rates. What support is there for employers who struggle with technology or don't have access to computers or perhaps have language barriers as well? Yeah, so we've provided quite a lot of support. We have a horticulture showcase, we call it, on our website. There's really clear, uh, good tools and resources that employers can use. That includes uh, how to keep records, what, what the obligations are. It actually makes it very easy for those employers to use and it's done with, we've tested that with horticulture employers and horticulture workers and their representatives, so unions and employer bodies. And we really encourage um, employers to go to that. It's fairwork.gov.au, just Google in their horticulture. Um, if they then, it's all free, it's all simple. They can also contact us if they've got any questions. There really isn't an excuse for not working this out. It has been increasingly difficult to attract workers. What has this meant for compliance and uh, paying of workers? It doesn't help anybody to have people underpaid. Has this increased need for workers, though, in the, the last couple of years affected compliance and, and forced employers to perhaps uh, lift their rates and their compliance? Um, potentially. It's, it's across the board. We know that you know wages are starting to go up. Um, workers have always been able to earn good money when they've been out going picking. We know that. Um, and that's what attracts a whole lot of them uh, to that area. They can go and it's, it's relatively unskilled so they can go and earn some money while they're travelling or studying. Uh, it's a really good option for many of them and they choose to do it uh, but it needs to be something that continues to be attractive and, and when we come out and say there's all this underpayment going on it really doesn't help uh, for people to attract workers. So we try to do that in a, in a measured way. We don't want to come across as heavy-handed 
Uh, but it is frustrating when you find a few of these people doing the wrong thing. But I would state that our view is the majority of employers are doing the right thing. They make mistakes and we help them to address those. And if they are making mistakes and they fix the issue, they won't hear from us again. Fair Work Ombudsman Sandra Parker speaking there. And speaking of worker conditions, a new report by accounting firm Deloitte has recommended that single enforceable standard, a single enforceable standard for accommodation be established to provide living conditions, uh, improved living conditions for horticulture workers. Published ahead of the United Nations Human Rights Day on Saturday, the review was commissioned by Coles and the Retail Supply Chain Alliance. Report author Victoria Whittaker told David Clawton that horticulture workers are often vulnerable to exploitation. They're workers who don't necessarily have English as a first language, don't necessarily fully understand their rights. Uh, Typically they're employed either directly by a grower or through a third-party contractor. And the accommodation that they're provided can be you know, up to eight people living in a bedroom, in a four-bedroom house. So lots of people living in that house with one bathroom and lots of rules about what they can and can't do. One of the unions said that they encountered four workers packed into an empty shipping container with nothing but a couple of bunks. Yeah, we didn't find that in our work, but we have heard of similar situations uh, popping up uh, around the place. So that, that is something that does happen. Do you think conditions are worse if people are employed through a labour hire company or if they're employed directly by a farmer? Um, I I don't think they're... um, I don't think we can outright say that they're definitely worse across the board. I think that they're they're varied. And what we found um, by far and large is that there's a lot of variety um, of different accommodation standards, different um, fees that they're getting charged, different deductions that they're getting made. It's it's certainly not uniform across the market. Now, we know that there is some improvement in the hort sector with the um, conditions in Queensland where people have to be licensed if they're going to be involved in contracting labour. And there's also a minimum wage. And so some things are being improved, but there's clearly still a very big problem when it comes to the sorts of living conditions that people are in. That's right. They do need to be licensed under the Pacific um, uh, Pacific um, Labor Migrant Scheme. Um, so, so there is a licensing requirement, and there are certain duties that they need to fulfil in order to bring workers to Australia. But I think what we found was also some workarounds um, for those different factors that that came through. For example, under the scheme for Pacific. Um, migrant workers, they're required to provide a support person, so someone who's going to look after the workers' wellbeings. And what we found in some instances was the cost of that was being deducted from the workers' wages. So it's those sort of workarounds that are happening that, that lead That's not the to... only thing, is it? It's, it's, it's the cost of getting your visa, it's the cost of your flights, it's the cost of your equipment. It's so many, so many deductions, including accommodation, that uh, sometimes that's... they're barely taking home a dollar. That's right. And and depending, you know, if the season starts late uh, because of the weather or things like that, they could actually be um, fronting up those fees without actually any salary coming through. So you're recommending a single enforceable standard for accommodation for hort workers. How, how would that work? We, we make a number of recommendations and that's definitely one of them. We did find a number of different standards that are out there at the moment that are being applied in different ways. We believe that by 
providing a base protects workers, but by lifting the bar in other ways as well, you can actually attract workers to different regions of Australia and therefore give competitive advantage by actually looking after the workers. And we did find some really good examples of workers being looked after. So we found one um, one site, for example, where the workers were paying the least that we found, which was $100 a week, and they were sharing uh, five people into a three-bedroom house. So there was two um, people in, in two bedrooms and one in their own bedroom. And they were well looked after by their employer and they were returning year after year. Whatever so they're, they're just paying the cost of the accommodation. The labour hire company or the farm is not trying to make money off the accommodation. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And you're saying there should be rules on what costs can be passed on to workers. Yeah, absolutely. I think there needs to be some standards in place around uh, what can be passed on to workers, what's appropriate to be passed on to workers and what a company should be absorbing them themselves. And there were some other suggestions from various unions who've been involved in this this commissioning of the study as well or, or, or in responding to it. Uh, the need for a housing plan for regional Australia. Did you consider that idea as well? Yeah, we did, absolutely. So there's not a lot of regional housing available at the moment. And so having fit-for-purpose housing for workers, which there is in some parts of Australia, fit-for-purpose housing for workers where they're sleeping in in Donga-style accommodation, like what you see in the mines, um, could be appropriate. But um, solving the um, the regional housing issue is, is something that's important, I think, for all Australians as well as for these workers. Victoria Whitaker from Deloitte speaking with David Clawton. Coles has welcomed the recommendations and supports an industry-wide benchmark for accommodation, as do a number of unions in the sector. Uh, It is seven minutes to one. Celebrate New Year's Eve on the ABC with our Sydney Harbour party for the whole family. At 8.30, it's the early night show, then 9 o'clock fireworks. Then Charlie Pickering and Zan Rowe bring you the biggest Aussie acts, including Vicar and Linda, Tones and I and loads more. And stay up for the spectacular Midnight Fireworks, audio described on ABC Radio. Happy New Year! Celebrate New Year with us on ABC TV, ABC iView and ABC Radio. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Today, a poultry farm worker in Port Wakefield has claimed the company he worked for has failed to supply suitable living accommodation for more than eight months. Scott McKenzie took a job at Sarah's Poultry because accommodation was included in the employment contract. Mr McKenzie spoke with Christian Komenos about how his partner and five children lived in a house filled with mould and how they were forced to live in two caravans without amenities. So about eight months ago when I first started, reported the kitchen sink leaking and the cupboards were mouldy and that. We asked for it to be fixed. And then when my partner lifted up a corner of the lino, she realised the house was inundated with mould. And from there, we reported it again. And they pretty much kicked us out, got these people to come in and try to repair it on the cheap without doing their job properly according to the codes and conduct of Safe Work SA. And then re-reported it so many more times after that. Not, nothing ever got done, like not even a plumber out until this whole situation happened. Then I was forced to rip up the lino and everything, like the whole house of lino, without safety equipment or anything. And then, obviously, you would have asked them to fix this. They refused. And what happened there? Until we kicked up a big enough stink about the whole situation, that's when they told us to leave the property 
and we went into the biosecurity zone. So what is a biosecurity farm. zone? So we were like 10 metres away from chicken sheds with the ammonia pumping out inside the staff office. We were there for one night, then they got two really bad caravans and made my partner with no water, no like heat and cooling, nothing, just pee on the ground out in front of the caravan and stress, depression of moving every like day or two. Like my whole family seat, my daughter's been hospitalised since being on this farm multiple times. My son's been hospitalised. I've got a 10-month-old with cancer and it's affecting his recovery. How long were you in the caravans for? We were in there for two or three nights and they put us in Port Wakefield Motel but that wasn't big enough for my whole family so they had to pay another worker to look after some of my kids without my permission. They were like, this is your only choice. After at the motel, did you go back to the caravan? Yes, we were made to go back to the caravan and then we went back to the motel for another two nights and then we were made to go back to the caravans again and then we were made to go to Balaclava Caravan Park in a two by three metre square cabin with all, all our kids. That was the first night we were able to spend in two weeks with all of our kids at the same time. Where are you now? We're in a beachfront villa now, surprisingly. How has this affected you and your family physically and mentally? Mentally is unreal. I'm banned from the farm site. I've, I've got a kid on the NDIS. All of his hearing aids and everything that he needs, like we've got a microphone that wraps around our neck that we can keep in monitor, constant talking with him. He, he's got none of that because we are banned from the site. And your partner, um, how has it affected her? She's a mental wreck. She's on steroids to help try and bring the mould up out of the system. So when were you banned from that farm and are you still banned from that? As far as I know, they like, if you need anything, please arrange and we'll, we'll get it to you. But I'm not to step on farm at all. So you're still employed with them. Yep. But you've but I'm you're banned, banned from my workplace. Okay, but you're allowed to come back? Uh, after my annual leave, I do not know. Are you looking for other work? I'm going to have to. SA poultry farm worker Scott McKenzie speaking with Christian Komenos and a spokesperson for Cirrus Poultry Farm said they immediately hired contractors to repair the damage in the house and rectify the situation. The company said it continues to provide the employee and their family with alternative accommodation arrangements in a limited housing market and they say they place the utmost importance on health, safety and living conditions of their employees. Safe Work SA has also been notified of the situation and is making inquiries as well. So uh, a lot of focus today on uh, farm practices and uh, conditions so uh, it's important to make sure you're abiding by the law that's all I have time for though today but Deb Tribal will be with you this afternoon good afternoon good afternoon Cass lovely to be with you yes and do you really understand what's going on with the national power prices at the moment I haven't paid much attention to it I mean there's a meeting am I coming through here it looks like it, I guess. Okay, sorry. Uh, um, there's a meeting right now, of course, of National Cabinet members and trying to work out what they're going to do to keep our power prices lower. I still don't understand how it's supposed to work or if anything solid is going to come out of it. So we will explore that issue this afternoon. And we're going to meet the state's first cross-border commissioner. She's been appointed. She doesn't start her role until 2023. But who is Liz McKinnon? And what is she hoping to achieve in this brand new position? Lots to talk about there. And I wonder how much uh, that job is needed now that we don't have uh, the the closed borders. I dare say she'll be able to uh, further elucidate you. 
Yeah, I think the issue is you don't want to be on the hop like we were with the last crisis. You want to be ahead of the game with those relationships already established. But we'll hear from Liz McKinnon after one. Sounds good. Thanks so much for that, Deb. More to come on your ABC local radio as we approach one o'clock. Time for news. ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Because I've been here for 35 years, mate. Yeah. And the weather is beautiful. <laughs> when I first moved here, yep, I had a lot of friends saying, what are you doing? Hear it anywhere, anytime via the ABC Listen app. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.